God begins to connect you with relationships and people that are encouragement, they're strengthening, they uh, challenge you, uh, they irritate you, all those things that, that God does with people that he sends our way. And, you know, about 15 years later, him and Amy, and by then I had met Dory and we got married and we started this eldership process together. And so in February the 23rd uh, in um, 1993, we were ordained together. And over the years, been almost 19 years down here, they have been such an encouragement to us at times. And if there was something going on, always get a word, a word of wisdom, always prayer. And then you just saw his family uh, now on the mission field together. He just sent um, his daughter and son-in-law and their family to Germany. And it's just neat to, to grow in God and to, to see God uh, move on your kids and move on your family and to see them doing things for God. And that's what we hope for all of us and your kids, that they, they just uh, get a heart for God and they get a call in their life and they move forward. And I just want to encourage all of you to hang in there no matter what you're going through. Because I tell you, in this world, uh, there's many already distractions trying to keep you from what God has. And before Ken comes, Dory has a little something she wants to say. Well, I don't want to throw Ken off, but I'm going to have him share something. I, because I was thinking when we were doing worship... <laughs> How, you know, it is Dr. Ken Van Meter, and the guy is sort of really this very educated being. And when my kids were little and they'd go have dinner at their house, they'd have nights where either they would be talking or they would all read at dinner. And so he grew up on these National Geographics, and he was entrenched with evolution growing up. And, um, you know, we all, this church really believes in the prophetic, and when him and Amy were having a prophetic word one time. It was really interesting what one of the prophets who didn't know them said to him about taking him out of something and putting him into something different. But I don't know the exact wording. I know you do. Yes, I do. Every jot and tittle. I do. This doesn't count as my teaching time. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I grew up in the California public school system, uh, thoroughly indoctrinated in a humanistic, materialistic worldview. And um, I did two years at Fresno State, transferred to Berkeley because I, at the time, thought I wanted to go to medical school. God had other plans. Um, so I go to Berkeley, and um, I, I finished two years at Cal. And again, it's more of the same evolution, Darwin, et cetera, et cetera, and all of the vocabulary that goes along with that. Um, and then I moved down to San Jose State to get a teaching credential. Um, and I meet this really cute girl in the choir, and so we're dating, and um, I, um, the first disagreement, I don't know, it was certainly not the last, <laughs> um, <clears throat> was over the issue of creation, and, you know, she went to the presentation, okay, this all-girls Catholic school, can I say that with a little bit of disdain and body language, that as if I knew more... I was a graduate from Cal Berkeley going to graduate, so come on, I know more than you do, girl, <laughs> was, of course, my attitude. Hello. <laughs> Please silence your phones. <laughs> <clears throat> so she referred me to this gentleman uh, who was an elder in our church, Dewey Hodges. He's now an emeritus professor at uh, Georgia Tech, but he was at NASA. He's an aerospace research specialist. The man knows more about helicopter blades than anybody else on the planet. And he gave me a couple of books. Um, and over the period of basically six months, I came to realize that I had been taught something that was a lie. 
I mean, my professors thought it was true, so they were passing along to me. So I'm at this prophetic meeting, and this, this gentleman says, um, and, and this is rather an exalted comparison, so I'm just quoting his words. He sees me like Moses in that I was delivered from the Egyptian, Moses was delivered from the Egyptian worldview, those 40 years in the desert. And then when Moses got the, the download for the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the system of worship, there's nothing whatsoever of the Egyptian uh, multi-god mindset. That whole thing was just erased from Moses' mind, and he'd been delivered to the tabernacle and so forth. And so the prophet was comparing me to that in the sense that <clears throat> you know, Egypt paid for my education, um, and I went on and got a master's degree at Stanford where it was more of the same stuff, being polite when I say stuff. I actually turned in a paper at Stanford where I had quoted a scripture in, a, in this class in the philosophy of education, and I quoted one scripture out of Job. Otherwise, it was a pretty well-written paper. And the professor had the courage to at least say, you completely missed the point of this assignment. Please rewrite it. So I fed him what he wanted to hear and got an A on the paper and an A on the class and so on and so forth. But, um, so that's what, yeah. So yes, I am a, because of the evidence, an ardent young earth creationist to this day. Okay, you have with you an outline Psalm 139. Now, Althea, did you know that this is the sailor's psalm? We, we sang that song about the wind in my sails and the anchor in the wave. Actually, there's not too much anchors out in the waves, but nevertheless, that's <laughs> this is the sailor's psalm. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to speak about Psalm 139, and uh, you have this table that's sort of an outline, and then this is the New Living Translation. Now, the New Living Translation is not an exact word-for-word, word, but it's pretty much a thought-for-thought thought, um, way of saying it. So if you have a different translation, NIV or New American Standard, the, the wordings and choice of vocabulary might be different, but the, the content of the thought is the same. Uh, you had Mike Heron speak here at this church, have you not? If you want to study the Psalms, get Mike Heron's book. This is the most insightful musicians, worship leaders, prophets' point of view about the Psalms, which were songs. So the heart of a psalmist worshiping Christ through the Psalms. Um, some of the thoughts I'm sharing this evening come from Mike. Personal stories are mine. So here we go. Okay, uh, Psalm 139. This psalm is mankind, humanity, seeing ourselves through the point of view of a God God is not limited by time. God is not limited by space. And there's no barriers between God and the realm of human thought. Now, that might be a little scary to you. You mean God knows what I'm thinking? Oh, yes, he does. Even before you finish thinking it. But God stands apart. And there's this line in one of the Star Trek movies, you know, I'm not part of the Romulan Empire. We stand apart. God stands apart from the laws of physics. He made them. He stands apart from time. He created that. Um, this psalm lets us see, and I love how Althea chose the songs, the measureless love of God. Incomprehensible, measureless love of God. And his thoughts towards you, because you are the delight of his heart. So, the introduction, this is to the choir director. 
Do you know that we know the name of that choir director? Bible trivia. First Chronicles 15.22 says, reads, Kenaniah, the head Levite, was chosen as the choir director because of his skill. So this is to the choir director. We think that's Kenaniah. His buddies probably just called him Ken, which is why I related to that. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 6 <clears throat> have this, um, they are sort of the first unit here, where we see God knowing things. So uh, I'll read through this and make a few comments. O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. Okay, when we think of an examination, we typically think of a final exam of a class in school or a doctor's examination trying to find out if we're healthy or not. But this is an, a, a time where David has examined his own heart, and he's saying, Lord, you have. Notice it's past tense. David's speaking to the Lord as if he's already accomplished this. Lord, you know everything about me. <laughs> you know when I sit down and stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. <sighs> you mean those thoughts that I have when I don't let them out of my mouth? Yeah. Those thoughts when you're driving and have judgmental thoughts about other drivers? Yeah, those two. He knows our thoughts even when we're just beginning them, when they're still unfashioned, when they're potential thoughts. You know those things that you think about in your life experience, but, your, but experience has taught you, I better not say this. God knows those thoughts too. If you're married, those things you've learned not to say, yeah. Um, he knows those. In fact, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Wow. Okay, so there's like the bookends of that to the to the psalm here. He goes on in verse C, in verse 3, you see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. How many of you have ever traveled outside the continental United States? Cool. How many have been to Europe? South America? Oh, nobody's been to South America yet. Central America? Mexico? Okay, good. Um, Asia? Some travelers. God has given me good opportunities to travel. Um, when I was 20 years old, uh, after finishing my, no, I'd say I was 20, yeah, I was 20 years old. Dang, it's 45 years ago. Uh, actually, it was 45 years ago this month. I left home and flew to Panama and uh, got on board a 44-foot sailboat and sailed from Panama to the Galapagos Islands and then across to French Polynesia, uh, and then Tahiti and Bora Bora, and then down to New Zealand. So 7,352 miles. That's the distance by sailboat from Panama to New Zealand. That's what these numbers are here for. They represent different things. So first number. It was, we averaged about 119 miles a day, um, and God saw me when I was traveling. There were times, I use the phrase, I was never more than three miles from land, straight down. But there was a time when I was 1,700 miles from land in any direction. <laughs> Many boats have on them, Oh God, or Oh Lord, your sea is so great and my boat is so small. <sighs> God sees us when we travel. 
and he knows everything we do. God's knowing of everything we do, that's a constant, ongoing, never-ending state of knowingness for you and every other person on earth. And do you know that there's about 7.4 billion human souls on this planet these days? And God knows them. The idea of traveling, I mean, travel opens your eyes. Um, how many people have been, were born and raised in Hollister? Yeah, see, a lot of you were born elsewhere, and you've traveled here. Um, I've had the chance to be in New Zealand and Mongolia and Siberia and the Galapagos Islands. And you know what? God loves all those people, too. Verse 4 is really threatening. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Remember the time that Jesus was going to heal the, the man with a withered hand? And he said he, he knew the Pharisees' thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. And of course, that only applies to the English language, right? Oh, no. Do you know that there's 6,909 languages on this planet? And God speaks all of those languages? And God made every one of those languages. And with, with Ben and Jessica being linguists, there is no naturalistic, humanistic, evolutionary explanation for languages. For the variety of languages on this planet, there is no explanation. They don't know how that happened. There are theories, there are ideas. None of them compares with Genesis chapter 10, the Tower of Babel. Really, simultaneous, instantaneous mixture of languages. Now, languages have changed over those thousands of years, but not millions of years. But God speaks over 6,900 languages. He hears, he knows. Before Peter, God said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He knew what he was going to say even before Peter knew he was going to say it. That's the mighty God we serve. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. I have six, I'm sorry, I have four grandchildren. Two of them are eight, two of them are six. They're still short. I can't help myself but to put my hand on their head time after time. And I don't know if they understand it, but in my thinking, I am blessing them. I am blessing them. The hand of blessing on our head is like the, the, the Jewish tradition of blessing the firstborn. Do you know that you're a firstborn child? According to Hebrews, Hebrews 12.23, you have you, and this is not just firstborn sons, by the way, ladies. You're included in this. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, your name is written in heaven, and you have come to the, first, the assembly of the firstborn children. How many firstborn kids are there here? Firstborn in your family? Any only children here? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> second born? Yay. Second born middle children? Third or later? How many are third or later? Cool. You know, there, there's whole stereotypes about parenting and, and, and um, birth order. Uh, that's a fascinating study, too. Um, <clears throat> I'm a, I use the phrase, I'm the well-adjusted middle child of three. So, <laughs> so you've come to, you, we are a part of that. He, he goes before us, he follows us, he places our hand, his hand on our head. 
And then in, at the end of this section or paragraph, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful to, for me, too great for me to understand. Okay. He speaks these languages. He goes before us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. I can't wrap my head around this, Lord, in the modern version. So the result of that, in my thinking, should be awe. I mean, when we say, that's awesome, I mean, it should be, oh, wow. It, it should lead us to worship. I read one article one time that said, the proper study of science, just knowledge, the proper outcome of the study of science is worship. Because the more you discover about this world and the way God's made it, it leads you to him and it makes you worship. It, ca- it, it leads me to humility. Who am I, God? When I look at you and who you are and what you do and what you've done, who am I? It gives me reverence. I mean, I revere and respect this other apart king of creation, Lord, that we serve. And it makes me wonder. I mean, you're all a firstborn kid. Do you know that how miraculous you are? We'll find out more about that later. But awe and worship, humility, reverence, wonder, such knowledge, knowledge, knowing. You know, there is such, Ecclesiastes, the making of many books is of weariness to the flesh. <laughs> you can't have too much school. And I can say that. Verse 7, he goes on, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. And then he talks about the supernatural or the over the earth and under the earth. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. Jonah experienced this. I cried out in, in Jonah 2, 2 and and. and Chapter 2, verses 2 and 6, Jonah says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me, I called to you from the world of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. In, Jonah, in verse 6, I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was locked out of life and imprisoned in the land of the dead. That was Jonah's words regarding his experience in the great fish. By the way, we don't know that it was a whale. Bible says great fish could have been specially created just for Jonah. We don't know. And it's important when we read scripture to know what we don't know and not pretend that we don't know. Anyway, verse 9. If I ride, we're talking about where God is. I can't escape from the heaven. Uh, if you're, I can't escape from your spirit in the heaven, in the grave. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. This is why I say it's the sailors, you know, farthest oceans. The Pacific is a big ocean. You look at a globe, there's more blue than land. Do you know that this planet, let's call it 70, 71% water. If it was 75% water, it would be too much. If it was 65% water, the whole water cycle for rain and condensation and precipitation would be out of balance. But a 70-30 balance is just right. <laughs> I was talking to a fellow from the Pleasanton Fire Department the other day and um, about you know emergency stuff in a, in a machine shop. The oxygen in our atmosphere is right about 20, 21 percent. 
if it was 2% less, human life would not be possible. Bacteria and plants could live, but higher life could not exist. If it was 24, 25%, those fires would be completely out of control and would consume all the forest. The amount of oxygen in our atmosphere is just right, plus or minus 2%. Is that an accident? chance that that's an accident. The wings of the dawn, what are those? Anybody want to, before I tell you, anybody want to take a guess what the wings of the dawn are? You know, a good teacher would wait a long time for somebody to raise their hand. Um, Amy and I live in a little duplex on the east side of San Jose, and our front door faces west, and so our back door and our backyard face east. And so we wake up and uh, I make the pot of coffee, or I prepare the coffee and just brew it in the morning. We will go outside, weather permitting, and that even in the winter, we'll bundle up with coats and, and long sleeves, um, and we sit there, and we have a cup of coffee, and we're often quiet for quite a bit. We pray quietly together, but we have our coffee, and we wait for the sun to come up. And the sun comes up over the east foothills, and sometimes if there's clouds or water vapor, you know, you can see the rays of the sun coming up like that. I call that a hallelujah sunrise. <clears throat> and it gets brighter and brighter, and then the light behind the trees on the surface of the, the east foothills there, it gets so bright, but you can still see it. And then that first little part of the rim of the sun, those light comes straight from the sun to our eyes, and it's like within 30 seconds, you can't look at it anymore. It's so bright. That's how fast the wings of the dawn are. It's how fast the sun comes up over the eastern horizon and lights up the world in front of you. And if you live near the coast and it lights up the ocean just like that. Um, so if I ride the wings of the morning, that's the light dawning. Um, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. And then he talks about darkness. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. Verse 12, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You know the first recorded words that God spoke? Genesis chapter 1. What were God's first spoken words as recorded in the Bible? Come on, say it. Let there be light. <laughs> Do you think God couldn't see until he said, let there be light? <laughs> right? <clears throat> darkness and light are alike to you. Um, the, the darkness before creation that's mentioned, there was darkness upon the face of the deep, the complete absence of light. Um, in Exodus 10, we read one of the plagues. There was darkness for three days. That was not a... Um, I was trying to imagine this. I mean, it's obviously a supernatural miracle. This was not the moon passing in front of the sun or dark clouds. You can put the thickest clouds up there, you can still see. We know that an eclipse of the sun, you know, with the moon there, that'll last two or three minutes, right? And we, recently we found that out. Um, and Jesus was on the cross for three hours, and there was darkness over the whole land. We don't know how far that darkness extended. I, I had this picture of, of God, like, taking this, um, what do they call blackout curtains? You know, something that doesn't let any light through, and just sort of going like this, and then wrapping it around the planet, and then blowing into it so it stayed there for three hours, just eliminating any source of light. No stars, no moonlight, no sun, 
just eliminating light from the surface of the earth for three hours. Um, that's my imagination. That's what scripture says. It was dark for three hours. It was dark for three days. And now we get to the miraculous, <laughs> as if we haven't looked at that already. Verse 13. Um, you made all of the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Have you ever thought about how that happens? I mean, biology, my degree is in physiology, so I understand the real biology. I have a, my teaching credentials in the life sciences. So you get a little contribution from dad and a little contribution from mom, said generically. And at the moment that the two little bits of nucleic acid from the two contributors comes together, there's a life. And then the miracle starts. One cell, if you're in the tech industry, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, come on, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1,028. After that, I won't run out of it. But they double. Somewhere between the 10,000s and the hundreds of thousands of, of those cells, some of those cells start to say, ah, I think I'm going to be an eye. Another group says, I think we're going to be a pancreas. Somebody else says, we want to be a kneecap. And it's all there in that one cell at the beginning. And it has to be done in the right order at the right time. The sequence is important, and the timing is important. It doesn't do any good to have, um, well, I mean, look at the lungs. They're not breathing air until the moment of birth, right? but they've got to be formed. They've got to be ready, even though they're not being used. The heart's already being used. The muscles and the bones and the skin's already being used, but the lungs aren't. <laughs> Do you know how a baby gets its oxygen from the umbilical cord from the mom's placenta? It comes in basically next to the liver, and the, the, child, the baby's circulatory has to be reprogrammed within a few minutes in order for the oxygen that they used to get from mom now to get to the brain to keep the baby alive, things have to change around on the inside of that baby. There's no instructor down there telling it what to do. It does it because God made it to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, every single one of you is a astonishing miracle of God's creative power. If you think of the most complex human manufactured things, I think of a nuclear submarine or uh, you know, an aircraft carrier or a skyscraper. I mean, these things that take hours and years and, and thought, uh, you know, an assembly plant. How does Amazon know what I put on my phone and it shows up at my house two days later? I can't wrap my mind around that, right? And everybody in the country can do that. How does that work? All of that stuff, Amazon and submarines, that's like rubbing two sticks together compared to what God does. God is a blowtorch. You are a miracle. The fact that you're sitting here, the fact that you were born and stayed alive is, I kid you not, a miracle. Job said in Job 10, 
You guided my conception and formed me in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit my bones and sinews together. Verse 15, David goes on. You watched me as as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of a womb. You know when weavers make cloth, there's a program. I mean, they program the loom. When, When knitters and crocheters... There's a pattern, right? You're a pattern. You're a unique pattern. There never, there has never been a human being alive just like you, and there never will be another one. One estimate said that there have been over 70 billion humans alive on the planet. Now, that's making some assumptions and some estimates, and we don't know for sure. But you think about even 6,000 years, you know, there's 7 billion now. You know, all the people that have died, that adds up. There's never been one like you. There's never been one like you. David said, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have a free will, but God knows how long you're going to live. He knows what you're going to die from. My mom's going to turn 94. I don't think she's going to make 95. I visited Ruth Ann Phillips this morning. She's 85. And she's still got her full mind, but her body is really, really frail. Um, you know, we're all going to die. And God knows when it. But God is, exists outside or apart from our understanding of time. By the way, that little baby... The average newborn has 26 billion cells. Now, an 8-pounder has more cells than a 5-pounder. That's true for fish as well as children. But more or less, 26 billion... One cell becomes 26 billion cells. Probably you have between 1 and and 1.5 trillion cells in your body. Overwhelming. It's hard to wrap your mind around those numbers. And then, and then, <laughs> God doesn't just make our, knit our body together. Your character, your soul, your spirit, your personality, they're all different. You're a unique combination. And then he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, oh God. They can't be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Okay, that was like putting a pork chop in front of a dog as far as I'm concerned. How many grains of sand are there on the earth? A, we don't know. Best guess is 7.5 times 10 to the 18th. There wasn't enough space to write out 18 zeros here. There's nine zeros there. That's 26 billion. So it's seven, I don't know how many trillion, quadrillion that becomes. It's a huge number. And that's just an estimate. I mean, we really don't know. But, you know, you count the grains of sand in a cup and you figure how many cups there are and, and so on and so forth. So, but that's astonishing. And then you look up at nighttime. <laughs> if you've seen the pictures that taken from the telescopes of, you know, the Hubble Deep Field, picture where they took the Hubble telescope and pointed it at a blank spot of the sky and they left it, the shutter open for, for days. I don't know if it was three days or a week. They left the shutter open for a long, long time pointing it at a spot of the sky where they didn't think there was anything. 
and they developed the film, so to speak, hundreds of galaxies. Again, an estimate, the best possible guess, 7 times 10 to the 21st stars. That's more than 1,000 times as many grains of sand. The number of grains of sand on this planet, multiply that by 1,000, and that's the estimate for the number of stars. And Genesis says, and God made the stars also. What? That's all it says about all of those stars? Uh Uh-huh. And God made the stars too. What a mighty God we serve. Okay. David has a change of attitude here. Verse 19. So we've talked about he's examined us. He knows us. He's watched us form, how precious are his thoughts. And then he says, oh, God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Whoa, talk about a change of attitude. He says, get out of my life, you murderers. Verse 20, they blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. You're not allowed to hate. We live in a new covenant. It's called the New Testament. Because when we hate, it's like we're the person in prison. That The thing, the episode, the person, the company that we hate, um, that intense emotion um, basically becomes a controlling thought in our lives. But fortunately, God's given us a way to not hate. Because every, there's not a single one of us in this room who doesn't have perfectly valid reason to hate something that has happened in your life. Life is not all smooth. It's not all easy. We live in a world full of sinners with attitudes and behaviors that are wrong and evil. But the antidote, according to the New Testament, is to love them and pray for them. Jesus showed the way. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't exactly his phrases. That was the Van Meter paraphrase. But we have to trust that there will come a time at the end of the age when the the flawless mercies that Jesus showed to his enemies from the time of the cross till now will turn into judgment. And it's not a personal judgment. Jesus is the judge. It's not a personal judgment. It's a positional judgment. It is a judgment because... Those people, those enemies, those resistors, those blasphemers, those murderers that David speaks about here, they have made an eternal choice to reject and oppose the God who, loved, who made them and loves them. And only Jesus is capable of that judgment because he's, he's free of anger. He's free of anger. And then D- David brings it home. He closes the book with these two thoughts. Search me, O God. Know my heart. You know, it started in verse 1. O Lord, you have examined my heart. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. David's already spoken that he knows that God has examined his heart. And then he says, Lord, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Do any of you not have anxious thoughts? I mean, I think of a junior high or a high school person. I think of a person facing retirement 
things in this life cause us to be anxious. And yet, Scripture says, can you, by being anxious, add a single cubit, a moment, to the span of your life? Can you, outside of a drugstore, change the color of your hair? Amy colors her hair. (laughs) None of you would have known that anyway. (laughs) Know my anxious thoughts. So God, know my heart. Know what's really my, my innermost thinking. What makes me tick, Lord? Test me. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. And then he says, point out anything in me that offends you. Oh, and lead me in the path of everlasting life. So David, in writing this, it's like he's stunned by how inclusive God's knowledge is concerning his life. And we should be stunned and awe and wonder and worship at God's all-inclusive knowledge of our life, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our, our attitudes. David sees the coming judgment on those who will persist in their wickedness. David asks for a test of his motives, his thought patterns, his life habits to make sure that he's on the Lord's side when God makes that eternal divide between good and evil. There's no third choice there. New Testament says, sheep or goats, you're on God's side or you're not. Can't can't say, yeah, I haven't made up my mind yet. That is why we are encouraged in the New Testament to have regular spiritual examinations so we cannot get sick hearts and sick minds and sick souls. Um, In the book of Acts, Paul goes to um, Athens and he meets with a group of thinkers and philosophers and talkers there. And he quotes some of their own poets and some of the people from their past to them. Um, I think Paul Paul was a well-educated man and we know that he lived at and after the time of Christ. and he probably was familiar with Socrates, um, who, lived, who died 400 years before Christ. But Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, this is why you should examine yourself. O Lord, you have examined me, David says. Paul says, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if your faith is really genuine. Test yourselves. David said, search me, God, know my heart, test me. Paul says, test yourselves. If you cannot tell that Jesus Christ is among you, it means you have failed the test. I know Jesus Christ is here because I heard you singing when Althea was playing. Jesus is here. Do you realize what a miracle you are? If you take nothing else away from this, you are, I I want to go to each of you and shake your hand and say, you are a miracle. You are not an accident. You are not some cosmic big bang 13 billion years later. Yeah, and here you are. No. The creator of the universe had you in mind when he made the earth. He had you in mind. He had each of us in mind. We are a miracle. And God's thoughts towards us are more than 7.5 times 10 to the 18th. 
I actually divided that out by the number of seconds in a year. God's thoughts for all of us are so astonishing, and he loves us, and he gives us his grace and his love and his forgiveness. So, search me, O God, and know my heart. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me. Lord, lead us along the path of everlasting life. Amen.